Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, the 13th chapter, beginning with the 25th verse. And following the Exodus, the journey of the children of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land, we come to a very solemn and crucial and well-known event in the history of that March, we come to the place where they first come upon the promised land and are challenged uh, by Moses to enter in, as God has commanded. When we put Deuteronomy 1 together with this 13th chapter of Numbers, we find that the pattern was that Moses... (coughs) instructed them to go up directly as soon as they got to this point, Kadesh Barnea. We read about uh, <clears throat> this in Deuteronomy 1.21. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Go up and possess it. This was Moses' instruction. But the children of Israel besought him that he would allow them to send spies to spy out the land first. Moses obviously uh, seeks the counsel of the Lord, and the Lord allows it. And so we read in uh, Numbers 13, 1 and 2, about the mission and the report of the spies. In uh, Numbers 13, 1, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. These spies go, and uh, they search the land, and then they report back. This report back is described in verses 27 and 28 of Numbers 13. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. They brought back great clusters of grapes which they had uh, taken in the land. Verse 28, Nevertheless, The people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, giants. You notice uh, this is a unanimous report up to this point. All of them say the same thing. The land is very fruitful, but the obstacles are very great. High-walled cities and giants in the land. But... Uh, They then have a minority report and a majority report from this point on. The minority report is given in verse 30. And Caleb, and we find that Joshua joined him in this, still the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But then the majority report, the ten, Spies uh, in verse 31, but the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And in verse 33, we saw the giants, the sons of Anak. We were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. You know, Often we come to a place in our spiritual life where 
to follow the Lord's will as we understand it involves great obstacles. We face a situation similar to that which they faced. I think of a young man recently who's in business who discussed with me the problems involved in him closing his business on Sunday, but he knew it was the Lord's will. How all cities and giants in the land. A young man present today who is wrestling with a call to the ministry, convinced that God's calling him, but high walled cities and giants in the land, many obstacles. A young lady, surely there's a young lady present who knows the Lord's will for her in reference to the type of boy she goes with and her own morals, and yet uh, high-walled cities and giants in the land. A businessman who knows that his business practices are not what God would have them to be, but high-walled cities and giants in the land. A congregation comes to this point on occasion where the Lord's will is spelled out for it. It's come a long way, but to proceed further with the Lord high wall cities and giants in the land. You notice the difference between the the two reports? <clears throat> Both agreed that the obstacles were there. But one group looked at the obstacles through the eyes of God and they said, Let us move ahead. We are well able through him to overcome. Surely we are as grasshoppers in the sight of these giants compared to them, but the giants and the obstacles are but grasshoppers compared to God, and if God be with us, who can be against us? There are always some when we come to these obstacles who would point out the obstacles and who would discourage us, but we must listen to those who speak the words of faith, who counsel moving ahead with the Lord and trusting the Lord to handle the obstacles. Notice the effect <clears throat> that this counsel had on the congregation of Israel. Who did they follow, the minority or the majority? In verse <clears throat> 2 of chapter 14, And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and the whole congregation, and said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us up unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? They murmur against the Lord, they complain, they question the Lord's goodness. Surely the Lord wouldn't have brought us to this point if he was good. The Lord must not care about our children. Our children are threatened by this situation, they say. Would God that we had died in the wilderness. What calumny on the name of God who had guided them and blessed them. What questioning of his motives. <clears throat> what rebellion against him as they not only accuse him of such motives, but as they 
actually appoint a captain. In verse 4, they said to one another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. We read in Nehemiah, they appointed a captain to lead them back into Egypt. And what folly, what utter folly. Uh, Did they think that uh, God, uh, who had done so many miracles for them, would work these miracles on the way back? That he would uh, provide them manna each day and water from the rock? We can see the folly of it. But do we see our own folly? When, uh, When we face a hard place, when we come to some point in our own lives or as a congregation and... The will of the Lord is clear, and yet we draw back and question whether we should follow him fully, the folly of it. You know, Paul says, he who spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Think of what God has done for us. God has given his son. He was under no obligation to do it. He did it freely, gladly, because he loved us. He gave him to come into this world of sin, to take the form of a servant, to live under the law, then to assume our guilt and to go through hell for us, to be punished with the punishment that a sinner experiences in hell on the cross. For our sin, because God loved us. And then to question his will, that it could ever be anything but good. When he spells out what we're to do, how could we question that what he tells us to do is what is best for us to do? How shall he not freely with his son give us all things if he gave us his son? Will he not take care of the obstacles that come up in the way of doing his will? What folly to question the Lord. What folly to draw back from following him. And yet we do it. Notice the counsel and the condemning of Joshua and Caleb at this point. In verse 6, the counsel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. He says we don't need to be afraid. If God is with us, if he delights in us, He will give us the land. He will remove the obstacles one by one. These obstacles will become bread for us. The only thing we need fear is rebelling against the Lord, is sin. Fear them not. That's the counsel, good counsel. Counsel from good men. 
Men who give this counsel in a spirit of meekness, they rend their clothes and they, they come humbly before the people to make this counsel. But notice the reaction of the people in verse 10. All the congregation bade stone them with stones. When sin is rebuked, when counsel is given of this nature, either men repent or they react violently. They retaliate. God acts to restrain the stoning as the glory of the Lord in the cloud shines forth. And then we have <clears throat> the provocation and proposal of the Lord brought before us. In verse 11, the provocation of the Lord. The Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. God was provoked. Sin provokes God. Jesus told a parable about God inviting men to his wedding feast. Men made excuse. It says that the Lord of the feast was wroth. And he said, none of those which were bidden shall come to my feast. But go out into the highways and the byways and bring in the lame and the halt and the maimed and the blind. God gets angry at sin, especially when that sin is done after men have had much light. He says, how long will this people provoke me? How long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? He delivered them from the Egyptians. He gave them manna. He gave them water after the rock. One obstacle after another he had already overcome. Is that not true in your life, in my life, in our life as a church? Has God not shown himself in marvelous ways to us? Have we not had the light that few have had? I don't believe there are many that have had the light we've had. I know they're not. How can it be? that we could conceive of not trusting him to be with us when we face hard spots, to remove the obstacles when he commands us to go into a given direction that seems hard. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Notice the reasoning and the request of Moses. The Lord makes a proposal right here. He says to Moses in the twelfth verse, I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a great nation and mightier than they. Here's Moses' great chance to exalt himself. But notice the request of Moses and the reasoning. His request in verse 19, Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy. Moses says, God, don't deal with them as they deserve. Pardon. That was a great request from a very meek man. And he urges this request on certain reasoning. 
First, a regard for God's own honor. In verse 15, Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. What was Moses concerned about, his own exaltation and his own reputation? No. But he was very concerned about the Lord's reputation, about the honoring, the hallowing of the Lord's name. And he says, God, if you wipe them out, your enemies will gloat. And they will say, you see, you really weren't able to do it. Oh, that's a great motive with God. Because God is interested in people knowing his name, knowing what he's like. That's the purpose of his revelation. Moses had urged this once before very successfully with God after the golden calf incident, and he urges it now again. And should we not urge it when we cry out to God, when we see a situation develop, when the enemies of the Lord could find great clause to blaspheme his name. Can't we come before God and say, God, for the honor of Christianity, for the honor of the kind of a change that we say Jesus Christ makes in a man's life, God, we beseech you, overrule, bless, show mercy, rebuke. Yes, we can plead that with God. Shouldn't we speak it to our own hearts? When we're tempted to do something that will bring dishonor to the name of Christianity or to the name of the Lord, oh, shouldn't we admonish ourselves? No, lest the Egyptians, lest the Philistines gloat over it. We will not do this thing. But we will cleave to the Lord and follow in his footsteps and let him remove the obstacles. Again, he urges another reason, a conformity to God's own attributes. In verse 18, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and will by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. He says, uh, God, you have told me, as he had earlier in Exodus, that you are a long-suffering God and of great mercy. You've also said that you are just and you punish sin. God, I pray that you will show mercy in some way, whatever way you can, in accord with your holiness and your justice. I pray that you won't make a full end of this group. And then he prays for a consistency with God's prior conduct. He says in verse 19, Pardon, as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. God, you've forgiven and you've blessed in the past. Do it again.
Notice how God responds to his servant on his knees. In verse 20, the response, and then the recompense of the Lord, the response in verse 20, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Moses, you no sooner said it. You no sooner requested that I answered. One of the names of God is, O thou that hearest prayer. What do God's people do when they face a problem? In their own life, in their congregation, the first thing we must always do is go to our knees and say, O God, hear our prayer. Bless this people. Forgive our sin. And God always answers prayer. That's our first line of defense. That's our first weapon against the enemy. God goes on then to speak, though, of recompense. He would pardon, but it would be in accord with his other attributes. He would show mercy, but justice would be shown also. He speaks of his recompense to the rebels first. In verse 23, Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it, speaking of the whole congregation. In verse 25, Get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Verse 29, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. In verse 31, But your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. They were afraid to do God's will because they were concerned about their little ones. And God shows that he was concerned and that he's able to overcome the obstacles their little ones faced. Notice what he says about the result of their disobedience to the little ones. In verse 36, 33, And your children shall wander in the wilderness... Forty years and bear your sin until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. What happens when an adult sins against God and doesn't follow the Lord fully, seeking somehow to protect his child? His child suffers terribly. Our children never suffer, not really, when we follow the Lord fully. But when we turn back from following the Lord, oh, our children reap the result of it. And when we march ahead, God will bless the children. God will look up to the obstacles. Something happened to the ten spies in verse 36 and 37. The men which Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. 
God dealt with these men in a particular way because of their particular guilt. They had caused the congregation of the Lord to sin. This whole matter has special reference to us today. The application is brought out in the book of Hebrews by the author of the Hebrews in the third chapter, starting with verse 8. He says, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Don't do like they did. They hardened their heart. What's the cancer? An unbelieving, disobedient, impenitent heart. This is the cancer that these men had. This was the disease. And here it's applied to us. He says in verse 10, Wherefore was I grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known with my way, have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. This cancer of a hardened heart brought a curse. God cursed them and swore in his wrath that they would not enter into his rest. Now the rest that they were excluded from was Canaan, entering into the promised land. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that that was a picture of something far deeper and far more serious than just failure to enter into the land of Canaan. In chapter 4 of Hebrews and verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. In other words, the rest that that was a picture of is heaven. These men, in rebelling against God and not entering into Canaan, are a picture of those who harden their heart against the Lord and come short of entering into heaven. Their death in the wilderness is a feeble picture of the awful punishment that awaits those who harden their heart against the Lord. We should never use this idea of the Israelites coming up to the edge of Canaan and then disobeying and being forced to wander 40 years as a picture of carnal Christianity. It's not a picture of a carnal Christian. It's a picture of a person who professes to be a Christian, but by their disposition towards obeying God, prove themselves not to be a Christian at all. However we define a carnal Christian, we better be real careful that we keep it within the limits that James imposes when James says faith without works is dead. James doesn't say faith without works is a carnal Christian. He says it's dead. It's no Christian. John says he that says that he knows him and keeps not his commandments is a carnal Christian. No, he says he's a liar and the truth is not in him. 
It's a very solemn and serious thing to disobey the explicit commands of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet to call ourselves a follower of his. The cure it says take heed brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, right now, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is subtle and deceitful. It leads to a hardening when we know what we ought to do and don't do it. Our hearts become hard. Exhort one another, instead of encouraging one another to go against the Lord, encourage one another to yield to the Lord, pray for one another. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. The evidence that we are Christian is that we persevere in the path of obedience and faith. As a recompense... He swore in his wrath they would not enter into his rest. But there was a recompense to those who did follow him also. Back in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24, we read the recompense that's given to Caleb and Joshua. But my servant Caleb, and Joshua's included a little further on, because he hath another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. His children will be blessed because he followed me. The reason why Caleb was rewarded and blessed by God, and given his inheritance, it says, because he hath followed me fully. And over in the book of Joshua, three times over, it said that the reason Caleb and Joshua blessed was they followed the Lord wholly and fully. In other words, beloved, all of those followed the Lord. Every one of them left Egypt and went toward the promised land. Every one of them could have called themselves followers of the Lord. But if we don't follow the Lord fully, we might as well not have followed. We're not really following When we come across those hard sayings of the Lord, do we react like those who said about Jesus, this is an hard saying, who can hear it? Or do we react like Caleb and Joshua and follow him fully? The commandments must not be esteemed grievous, and we must not be deterred by difficulties. But we must follow the revealed will of the Lord and let the chips fall where they may. God himself will deal with the obstacles, the high-walled cities and giants in the land. There are some here today who follow the Lord fully. And the counsel of this passage to you is to keep on. In any situation... Ascertain from Scripture what the will of the Lord is. He hath not left us without clear guidance in all of the relations we face in life. 
in any situation, ascertain what the will of the Lord is and follow it regardless. And let God take care of the obstacles. And you will be blessed and your children will be blessed. There are those present who follow the Lord partially. Take heed. It will do no good to have the name of Jesus unless you have the spirit that Caleb and Joshua exhibited. Take heed. While it is called today, repent. Yield to the Lord. There's some here today who don't follow the Lord at all. You wouldn't even profess to be Christians. You must follow the Lord. To whom shall we go, the disciples asked, when others turned back? Thou alone hast the words of eternal life. You must follow the Lord. You must come and yield your will to him unreservedly. You must start off following the Lord fully. You must not approach the Lord with any accepts, any buts, any reserves. You must come to the Lord if you are to become a Christian and say, Lord Jesus, without any reserves, I surrender my life to you. I put my trust in you as the one who died for me. I invite you to come in and control my life. I yield my rights to you. I have no rights. And that's the way to start following the Lord. And it's the way to continue following the Lord. Let us bow in prayer. If you know that you have not followed the Lord fully, consider in your heart if right now he would not have you yield to him, just in your own heart. Or if you know you have not followed the Lord at all, won't you pray in your heart the prayer that I pray out loud right now, if you really mean business, about wanting to be one of his true followers. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that thou alone hast the words of eternal life. I do yield my will to you. You become my master. I will follow your commandments as laid out in Scripture. And I do trust you as my alone Savior, the one who died for me. I invite you to come and live within right now and in faith. I thank you. Amen.